Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In a tradition that mocks Greek philosophy and human wisdom, it goes without saying that the wisdom afforded Solomon in the Old Testament is central to the Bible's critique of Hellenism. What's not so obvious, at least at first glance, is how this critique is expressed in the foolishness of David's son and the outcome of his life. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 224 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Before we launch into verse 7 and 8 of the Matthaean genealogy, I want to briefly express my frustration with the editors of the New American Standard Bible. That's the English text that Richard and I have been using on the podcast. And honestly, I was so disappointed in the editors that we may switch to a different text in subsequent series. But Richard had pointed out that in the Greek manuscript that he was looking at in the last episode, there was no mention of Bathsheba. And I had assumed that there were some Greek manuscripts that included the name and some that didn't, which would make the choice of the NASB to mention the name defensible. But then this morning, as we were preparing to record this episode, Richard mentioned that he had done some background research just to see which manuscripts mentioned the name Bathsheba, and we could not find one Greek text. And I want to call this out because, to me, it's a scandal that anyone engaged in the work of translation would take the liberty, not of trying to smooth over the translation or phrase it in a way that makes sense in English, which is bad enough, Because even in taking that basic liberty, you break the text. But that the editors of the New American Standard Bible would put a noun in a genealogy that cannot be found in the original manuscript, to me, is a betrayal. It's a betrayal of the trust of the addressee of the text, and it's a betrayal of the author of the Gospel of Matthew. You cannot include a word, specifically a noun, that was excluded from a text that is calculated with respect to what names are chosen. You have to be very careful of this. This is something that's been going on as long as manuscripts have been copied. Origen would put in an asterisk, and then he would put a variant off to the side. Well, then the asterisk would disappear by some copyist, and then what was on the side now appears in the middle of the text, and so now you've got a new text. The NASB put a footnote And they say, not in the original text. So then the next time you read it, someone may or may not include that footnote. Now, I think that if the NASB had put a footnote and put at the bottom, this is referring to Bathsheba, okay, fine, you can do that. King James, the technique they use is that they use italics. 
if they want to add an explanatory note inside the text, they put it in italics and it's very clear to the reader, this was added by the editor. In the synagogue, you would read the text of the Torah and then you would read an Aramaic translation, a Targum, and they couldn't even be read by the same person. One person read Torah, the other person read Targum, so that no one would be confused what is the text and what is the translation? What is the text and what is the commentary? There's no confusion. We do so much to make sure there's no confusion, and that's why it's disturbing what the NASB translators decided to do. Disturbing is the right word. I want to be clear for our listeners. I don't consider this a mistake. I don't consider this an error. I consider this morally dubious. We have no right under any circumstances to tamper with someone else's work. That's true of Harry Potter or A Christmas Carol. And if that's the case, it's most certainly true of the Bible. It is morally suspect that they tampered with the list of names in the genealogy. So I'm serious, Richard, when I say that I now have a problem with this translation. As I said, we've started using it for the Gospel of Matthew, and I think we should continue. The problem, though, is that no matter which translation we use, it's likely that at best, even with the King James Version, which is as literal as you can get in the English language, that liberties will be taken that obscure the original. So we'll keep going with this translation and make sure to check the original manuscripts as we move through. In verse 7 this morning, we are going to talk about the problem of human wisdom. For those of you who have been following our interviews with Father Paul on Tuesdays, you've begun to see a pattern emerge that the biblical canon is an assault on Greek literature, Greek philosophy, and Greek culture in the classical world. Insofar as scripture is attacking human wisdom, classical Greek literature and philosophy, it should be striking that at the center of the history writings in the Pentateuch, you have a character who is purported to be wise and who seeks to be wise and chooses wisdom over riches. Now, what's striking about the story of Solomon is that though he chooses wisdom and starts out with a kind of wisdom, things don't end up very well for him, do they? No, I mean, he's the last king of the United Kingdom that was established under Saul and then Solomon's father, David. And ironically, Solomon's name, Shlomo, is his peace. So the peace that reigns under Solomon ends as soon as the next generation is born. So Solomon is not able to pass along the wisdom that he gained. Not only his inability to pass on this wisdom, he had wicked children, which is the worst possible outcome of a man's life. Scripturally, it's a complete failure, which is why the genealogy is so compelling, and which is why ultimately the birth of Jesus is so powerfully reminiscent of Genesis. Everything's going awry until God intervenes and provides his own seed. But the problem of Solomon is even deeper because where he should have been the one to embody the wisdom that was gifted to him by the Lord, instead, he became the one who built the temple. I really want people to hear and absorb the folly of Solomon. 
Everyone always boasts about Solomon the Wise, and the only anecdote you ever hear in popular culture about Solomon is this episode where two women were fighting over a child trying to claim who the mother was. The reason that's all you ever hear is because that's probably the only example of wisdom in the text, because Solomon was not wise. How could you claim to be wise in the spirit of scriptural wisdom, but then be the one who built the temple? When the temple is a pejorative metaphor in the Old Testament, the temple represents the infrastructure that the Greeks imposed on the nomadic shepherd culture of the Levant in the ancient world. Come on. Building the temple is a sin. That's the first thing my wife said when we went to seminary. We met at seminary. She was taking Old Testament. She said, you know, this guy Solomon, God gave him wisdom. And what did he do? He put up a temple. The construction of the temple is the sin, and you see it in his sons. So we'll go through the text, but I really want people to hear what we're saying. You cannot build a cathedral and call it wisdom. It does not work. A building cannot be wise. A building cannot say something. What does a building say? It says nothing until you write a text on it. If a building could speak, why do you need a sign telling people where your church is? Common sense. We just read the Gospel of Mark. In the Gospel of Mark in chapter 13, which chronologically, in terms of the order of books, comes after Matthew. So in a sense, it's a more full expression of what Matthew is saying here in the genealogy. In the Gospel of Mark in chapter 13, Jesus says that these stones will be torn down. Because we're not talking about stones, we're talking about the wisdom of the Lord, which should have been the legacy of David and Solomon, but is not the legacy. The text really brings out this point. First of all, in order to build the temple, he goes and he forces the people from every tribe to come and work on the temple. He forcibly conscripts them to forced labor. We're not talking about Pharaoh. We're talking about Solomon. Now, what was it that we asked the prophet for? What did we ask for? In 1 Samuel 8, we asked for a king and the Lord warned Samuel what's going to happen. And now we have the fulfillment of that prophecy in Solomon that he's going to take your children and force them to work for him. Because once you have all these laborers coming to Jerusalem to build this temple, well, you got to feed them, right? So then he forces all the other people to produce more food in order to give to this forced labor. And this labor he's forcing from among his own people. Secondly, the craftsmen, the people with the ideas of this temple, where does he find these? Among the Canaanites, among the nations. Those are the ones who have the great ideas of how to build this thing. And if it were only for the infrastructure, because once you read what Solomon actually did, he built the house of the Lord and he built his own palace. And guess what? He spent twice as long to build his own palace as he did to build the temple. He used the labor and the children of his own people in order to build not only a house for God, but to spend even more time and energy to build his own stinking house. Now, to everybody listening to the podcast, can Solomon's palace produce the Messiah? Yes or no? Can a palace give birth to a son? Did the palace produce the birth of Jesus? It cannot. Solomon prayed for wisdom. The Lord said he would grant wisdom, but because he didn't ask for riches, he would give him riches as well. And then what did Solomon do? He rejected the wisdom, created a temple, and in so doing extracted wealth 
from his own people. It clarifies what the birth of Jesus means for the author of the Gospel of Matthew. He is employing the same literary strategy as the writers of Genesis. You have a long genealogy that amounts to nothing without the intervention of the Lord. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, the father of Abiyah, and Abiyah the father of Asaph. If Solomon was not the beginning of the end, Rehoboam certainly was the fulfillment of the end. This is the first son of the divided monarchy. So at this point, the 12 tribes were separated thanks to the actions of Rehoboam and the inability to get along with the other people. This was, of course, sown in the oppression of his father Solomon. Soon we have wars between the two kingdoms, and this is certainly where it all falls apart. So again, this begs the question, what good is Solomon's wisdom if it causes a divorce in the community? It causes the split between the north and the south. What good is his wisdom? I think the wisdom, again, that was given to Solomon is useful. But very quickly, we see that Solomon is just employing human wisdom. It's normal for the human to aspire to greatness, for the human to aspire to success, to succeed and to achieve all of the things that we understand to be normal according to the human perspective of how life works. I mean, at the end of the day, Hellenism is just an expression of what is psychologically natural for the human who's seeking his own survival. But the wisdom of God is something different. The wisdom of God would not allow Solomon to build a palace for himself, which makes no sense, because what king wouldn't live in a palace? Anyone would say that. The wisdom of God does not need a temple, which in a Hellenistic context makes no sense. They need a house, just like we do, because they're a projection of our ego. We project ourselves onto a giant white screen in the heavens. But the scriptural God is not so, because the scriptural God systematically teaches something that we can't project because it goes against how our mind works. It's not natural. It's not natural to try to claim that the king was wrong for being a successful king in worldly terms. I mean, look at how we act in the media. Every time a president dies, suddenly he was the greatest president who ever lived because it's in our nature to want to worship our leaders. And if you're reading in the book of Kings, you'll notice that once the peace that was established by David is then fractured by his peace, Solomon, Shlomo, and is finally broken by Rehoboam, then we have wars and then wars and then wars. Very often these wars are between the north and the south, which is just the worst. I mean, if you go through the book of Judges, you see how often this happens, that you have this fratricidal genocide that happens. And I talk about this in my work on Hosea. The worst kind of fighting is where one tribe tries to slaughter another tribe. Rather than uniting for each other's prosperity, they divide and they fight and they kill each other. And this begins in earnest with Rehoboam. So you have here the sons of Solomon. Rehoboam, who was a king in Judah in a divided kingdom, you have his son, Abiyah, who was also a king. But what's interesting about the name is there's another character of the same name. The name Abiyah means my father is Yahweh. So you have a second character who was a priest and the head of a priestly family from the time when David divided the priests into different classes. Now, you would argue these are two different characters, but 
here you have to also think functionally. When you hear the name of Aviyah the king, you would also think of Aviyah, the priest, the head of a priestly family. The point here simply is that you have the palace and the temple fully complicit in the corruption of the legacy of the wisdom that was handed down. Because what does this patrilineal line produce in the end, Richard? It does not produce Jesus. That's the key point. It produces wars, produces a temple. It can't produce Jesus. Asaf was the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Yoram, and Yoram the father of Uzziah. This verse, especially in light of what we were saying at the very beginning of this episode, is problematic. Because if you look in the book of Kings, you know that Jehoram did not beget Uzziah. There are a few more generations in between there. Where does Matthew get off going and changing things, so to speak? I'm going to put that in quotes, changing things. Matthew is doing something besides simply recording names. He's trying to present an unfolding of all of history. And for Matthew, as we see in this chapter, history begins with Abraham. This is where faith begins. This is where the Lord blesses Abraham to be a father of many nations. Then we have clear boundaries where we go from Abraham to David, David to the deportation, and the deportation to Jesus. These come systematically in 14 generations. He's making a point about history, not in the sense of how we talk about it in the modern world as in a history textbook of the events, but to talk about the way we perceive our past, one where we see that the Lord's mercy, the Lord's salvation, covers each of these periods in time. Once we hit David, the next one is the deportation. Matthew chooses names in order to get this to fit in the numerical matrix that he's fitting all of history into. He's making a big point here about how the story of scripture unfolds in a way that systematically leads from Abraham to Jesus. The names' meanings are interesting along those lines because now that Solomon has received and not implemented the Lord's wisdom, instead he was busy playing with Lego sets in Palestine, we're going to see the Lord's judgment and the Lord's might, the Lord's wrath. So the name Yoshaphat means whom the Lord judges, whom Yahweh judges. And the name Uzziah is like the name in Arabic Aziz, or the feminine Aziza, which is my mother's name, and it refers to the Lord's might. Aziz, Aziza in Arabic means mighty, powerful, but it also means precious, which is a very interesting play on language in Arabic. But the point is that the Lord's might will be revealed in the judgment that is manifest in the folly of the sons of David and Solomon. That's how I read the names. Another way you can translate Uzziah that doesn't contradict what you're saying is you could also understand it as the Lord is my strength. You could read it either way. But this fits precisely the judgment that Jehoshaphat predicts or prophesies. And so these names, the Lord judges, the Lord is strength, my strength, his peace all the way back to Solomon. They're all expressing these qualities of the Lord, which then are the measuring stick that show the weakness and the unrighteousness of the human kings. So Joram, Joram is how the Hebrew was transcribed in Greek, but in Hebrew it's Yehoram, Yeho, 
Jehovah, Yahweh, Ram. And it can either be whom Yahweh has exalted, or it can be Yahweh is exalted. Again, it's the same as with the strength. The king is held to this standard that is set by the Lord, which of course we're going to see in dazzling detail how he falls short. This is how scripture works with respect to judgment. In the baptismal service, we say, as many as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. We chant this verse from Paul's epistle when we walk around the font after the baptism. Do you not know that as many as have been baptized into Christ have put on his death, baptized into his death, or have put on Christ, depending on which text you're using? But the point is that in the baptismal service, if you understand that Paul is saying baptized not in the past tense but in the spirit of the aoristos meaning that it's something that is as good as done but without a horizon aorizo we've talked about this before then you realize that it's really yet to be determined whether or not you were baptized it's very much like the promise of the kingdom yes God has given you a seat in the kingdom, but you're not sitting there yet. You have a ticket. There's a seat reserved, but the ticket could be taken away and you don't get in. It could rain. Maybe it snows. Maybe the subway doesn't work and you miss the game. Who knows? The point is, you won't know whether it's really a completed action until you reach the horizon. And in this sense, the ambiguity of these names, very often people see a biblical name and they immediately opt for the positive interpretation, the Lord is my strength, for example. And then they put it on their wall if they have a kid named such and such. I think it's to be seen whether or not the Lord is your strength or the Lord is going to be exalted by putting you down. It's an open question. And again, we know the end of the genealogy. We know that the Lord will put all of them down by lifting up the one who is the least of all, Jesus Christ. This is Paul's teaching, and this is what Matthew is expressing. And I think it's pretty clear that, as is the case throughout the Bible, Matthew is being critical of the characters included in the story. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. Just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.